This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time to welcome in one of the all-time greats in the world of tennis. And uh, those of you who have been following my podcast know that the theme of these podcasts has been people outside of tennis who have a passion for tennis. But I just couldn't help myself, so I had to invite in my longtime friend, as I said, one of the all-time greats on the court and also off the court, the one and only Chris Ever. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> how, how are you? How are you? How are you holding up during these crazy times? Number one. Uh, good. Good. Um, can't complain. Uh, it would can't complain because, you know, so far, knock on wood, everyone in my family's been healthy. Um, we're starting to kind of get out a little bit. Our academy, I was asking you about your academy. Our academy opened up last week mm-hmm. just, you know, with respect a coach with a mask so things are starting to open up and hopefully people will not um take their foot off the gas and and think that this is it's all fun and free now because still they're they're everybody has responsibilities to do what they need to do but um you know it's, it's okay i have alex my 28 year old son with me so it was nice that he was with me i don't think anybody wants to be alone during this during this time um but a lot of uh a lot of free time and a lot of time for thinking. Yes. Well, uh, you are one of the great thinkers in your day on the court. I want to ask you initially, Chrissy, about how you got started in tennis, because obviously both of us come from, from tennis families, although your dad set the bar uh, way before any of us. With He was a teaching pro, and he was actually a really good player himself. So tell me your first memories of tennis. Well, I was forced into the game. <laughs> um, My first memory of the game was I was going to kindergarten, and every day after school, kindergarten, I would go over to my girlfriend Tara Bennett's house and go swimming and have a barbecue and just play around. And had I was having the time of my life. We didn't have a pool, so all of a sudden, my dad started picking me up after kindergarten, and I wasn't going to Tara Bennett's house anymore and having fun. I was going to the tennis courts, Holiday Park. Um, tennis courts, and he was feeding tennis balls out of a uh, out of a, um, a box of balls, or out, or it, um, out of like a hopper or something, or was it out of like a hopper? Yeah, right. he was just feeding me out of, a, out of a cart, feeding me a hundred balls, and you know it was like I, I remember feeling really upset and really angry. Hmm. I was like five. I was like five years old. Okay, because he was taking me, me away from my girlfriend and fun and like swimming and. Um, joyful and I was doing something that was very um, automatic and very repetitive and um, mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of kids around Holiday Park at that time and so that was my first memory and it, it wasn't a very good one um, but as I the more I played and every day this it soon turned into other kids started appearing at Holiday Park and my brothers and sisters also and so it became more social. I think I just missed the social component of it at first, but it became more of a social thing. And, and then I developed friendships, you know, with the kids there. And, um, you know, I think the outcome turned out okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely turned out okay. But I'm, I'm interested in those early years because, uh, you know, it's funny that your first memories were sort of being forced into it. But 
obviously it was big for your, for your dad, for your parents. It, it was their whole life. It became your family's life. You're still giving back in the way you do with all you've done outside of being on the court with your own academy and your, your, your dad's scholarship, et cetera. But when did it st- – or, or did it ever get fun for you? Was it just – I mean, the actual playing of the game, did it ever get fun? Yeah, it did. And, and you know, it's interesting you brought up my dad because later on when I became number one in the world, um, I asked him, Dad, why did you start all of us? There are five kids in our family. Why did you start all of us playing tennis? And I really thought I'd get a great answer like, you know, you're going to meet people from all over the world. You're going to travel. You're going to make money. Mm-hmm. Instead, he said, to keep you kids off the street. Mm-hmm. So he would, as soon as we were five years old, he would, you know, all five of us, he'd bring over to Holiday Park because he wanted to keep an eye on us. And he didn't, he always thought idle time was, was, ba- was dangerous. And, you know, he's right. I mean, we've all had kids now and we, we understand his, his way of thinking. But I think it started becoming more fun when um, I started playing tournaments, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it was fun to have courts with my sister and Lori Fleming and I developed some good friendships. But as soon as I started playing tennis under tournaments um, and we got to go to Coral Gables and Miami and Palm Beach and, and these nice clubs and we got to play matches and, and, and then I started winning. I think I was number one in the state um, at 10, 10 years old. And so the winning was t- intoxicating and the travel. Then we, we went to the nationals when I was 11 and, and everything started to, um, you know, I, th- I love the perks. I love the things that went along with playing in a tennis tournament. And then I also liked the, the prospect of winning because it made me feel good about myself. You know, I was pretty shy and it made me be creative and it made me be thoughtful out there. And it, and I liked when people cheered for me and, um, so it all, it all kind of snowballed into a pretty neat thing. Well, you ended up winning quite a bit, Chrissy, 157 titles, just to be exact, in singles, and of course, 18 majors, seven French Opens. We can go down the list. Uh, but I, I have noticed in, in my years working with you and broadcasting at ESPN, when you, you came over to work with ESPN after your many years at NBC, and then you left to raise your boys, as you talked about how important that's been to you. But I've always noticed over the years, I mean, we all know what a competitor you are because we watched you. We watched you growing up. We watched you on the court. But uh, it's your attention to detail, too, I think, that I've noticed as a broadcaster, your preparation. You know, you always have your notes ready. You've always done your homework. You come in there always very well prepared. So do you think that's something that helped drive your success uh, on the court, too? Yeah, I well, I think so. But I also think that... Um, Playing tennis and doing broadcasting are two completely different things. In the sense of, in the sense of, I feel like I almost was born to be a tennis player because I started at five years old. And anytime you start something at a young age, you naturally kind of adapt to it pretty easily. But yes, I think the preparation, I think the discipline, I think routine that you have um, as a tennis player, I think you can take that into any part of your life, um, work-wise. Uh, and I think it, it'll help you to become successful. I can't, I have a lot of notes cause I don't, I can't ad lib as well as you can, Patrick, <laughs> and I'm not as good off the cuff. You can come up with these things and you, your memory back in, you know, I remember in 72 what happened at Wimbledon and, 
and I just have to keep reminding myself. So I don't know if that's a that's well, a good thing or bad thing. Well, but. you won you won a lot more, okay? So you won you won you won oh, a lot okay. more big tournaments, <laughs> and you played so many big matches. But you know, when you look back at 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 your era, Chrissy, and you look at I mean, obviously the rivalry, incredible rivalry you had with Martina and how that pushed you to become a better player. Um, it seemed like, and maybe I'm wrong, I mean, obviously we follow the current game, so we see how things have changed. But, I mean, when you came up as a teenager, first of all, you were, you know, you were the ice maiden, you were, you were, the, you, you were the queen, you were the ice queen, you were just stoic out there, but yet uh, you were also a heartthrob you know, to, to, to many young guys yeah, around yeah. the world, including yours truly here, you know, coming up, we used, we used to look up to you and we used to look up to your style and your game, but also let's be honest, your looks. So when, when that started to materialize, when you started to win big titles and what was it like just being in the limelight that much? What was a, what was sort of a routine day like for Chris Everett in those days? During a tournament, or, or like, yeah, I mean, dur- I was going to school dur- during a tournament. After you, I'm saying, when you got out of school, when you, I mean, you went yeah, straight from straight right. from high school to the pros. Well, I, you know, there's no privacy. I mean, you know that you know that Patrick as well as your brother knows. That. I mean, there's no when you're um, famous or successful, especially at a young age. Um, it's it's there are some downfalls in it also because you know you talked about the ice maiden and Cinderella and tennis. You know, the press dub you, they give you an image mm-hmm. at a very young age. At a very young age, before you have a personality, before you have character, before you know who you are. So they kind of put you in a bubble, and you have to you think you have to act accordingly. So that's not a good thing for your growth as a human being. Mm. But, um, you know, being famous was no privacy. You know, people were always looking at you. People were always coming up to you, asking for autographs. Um, and, and basically the only time you had for yourself was either in your house or on the tennis court, because on the tennis court, you know, you, you did feel uh, by your, you, you did feel alone in the sense of you had to focus and block out everything else that's going on around you and just focus on the match and focus on the ball. But, um, you know, I think fame at a young age isn't always good and it has a lot of drawbacks, um. And I think that probably a lot of people don't know that. They just, you know, the big smiles on the kids' faces and the money and the checks and the titles, but they don't realize that, that maybe for their, again, for their growth and their evolving as a person, um, it sort of hinders you a little bit. Now tell me this, Chrissy, because uh, going back and, you know, as I always do, watch old great matches, watch matches that you played against Martina, but also against others. And, you know, when you would win, you would, you know, you might raise your hands a little bit, do a little celebration. But I think many of us remember you more for when you lost matches, you know, huge matches, big matches in Grand Slam finals. And you would just kind of, you just kind of put your head down for a second and you jog to the net to shake hands. What, what were you, oh. what were you thinking at that time? I mean, what, what was it? Where did it come from? That, that sort of sportsmanship that you showed and you walk up, you know, very gracefully, you, you know, you don't see players run to the net now. Remember when we grew up, that was sort of a thing, like, uh, right. You jog to the net after the match, win or lose. <laughs> Nobody does that anymore. Right. Why did you do that? <laughs> because my opponent was waiting for me at the net. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, uh... Look, you know, I my motto was I tried to take winning and losing the same way. Like, I did want to, there to be a real difference in my attitude. I didn't want to rub it in if I won, and I didn't want to 
take anything away from my opponent if I lost. And I think that we were all taught good sportsmanship in that era. And, um, and I also was self-conscious. I knew that, that everybody, you also know everybody's looking at you. I mean, you got TV cameras, you got crowds, you got, and you, you do, you know, you don't feel great at the moment, but at the same time, you can't hold it against your opponent. I mean, it's, it's not their fault. You know, you can't oh, right. like be mean to them, you know, or snub them. I mean, it's like it's just something that we did. It was about good sportsmanship. And I think that, again, that was um, evident in that era. So, so th- look at the role models we had. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm looking at Arthur Ashe. I'm mm-hmm. looking at Stan Smith. I mean, Roy Flavor. I mean, we had so many great role models in those days that Billy Jean were very King, good sports. Right. Billy, Billy Jean, Jean Margaret. Yeah. yeah. So you reached the semifinals or better, Chrissy. Fifty-two of the fifty-six majors that you play. Is that? I mean, is that? That's scary, isn't it? I mean, I mean, and when you look at today's game, obviously we have three of the all-time greats on the men's side. We have Serena, whose longevity has been incredible. The consistency hasn't been the same. You know, obviously she's taken some sabbaticals, had some injuries. But how were you able to maintain that consistency throughout your career, throughout all those years? Um, I think couple, I think a couple of reasons. I think, number one, I never looked back. Um, like if I won Wimbledon the next day, I mean, I would celebrate that night and the next day I'd be looking forward to, um, Seattle, which was a week later, you know, and this one to Seattle and I, and I put a lot of importance on that. So I, I thought it was important no matter what tournament it was, Grand Slam or otherwise, that I, I felt like I was a hundred percent in the moment, in the matches and a hundred percent professional and I still wanted to win. So I never looked back and I never really, celebrated um my successes as well which which i kind of think i could have done a little bit more i could have found a little bit more joy in winning but it was always like no next week another week Mm. and i think it was that kind of dogged um sort of perseverance that helped me to be consistent because week in and week out you know that was that was my trademark look i wasn't i didn't blow people off the court i wasn't i didn't have that explosive power that a serena has um and I didn't have the movement, explosive movement of a, of a Steffi Groff. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a versatile game with Martina. I, mean, I think physically, um, I was not the athlete a lot of these great players were. But I, but I had to make up for it in some capacity. And I compensated with the mental strength that I had and the mentality of being in every single point, not giving away anything for free you know, working the point, not making unforced errors. I mean, all that consistency and being solid um, was, was my trademark and was my friend. And obviously at that time when you were coming up in the, in the 70s and then into the 80s, um, you know, tennis was just sort of at the beginning of its boom um, for the men's and the women's game. So you had, uh, interesting, you hear you talk about that each tournament was important to you because I've heard my brother say that. I've heard Jimmy Connors say that, you know, the players of your ear on the men's side as well because you you all were doing a lot more than just, you know, saying I'm playing to win majors. I mean, you were playing to actually grow the yeah. game as well, weren't you? That was a big responsibility then. Well, I think especially for the women because the men already had a tour and they didn't want to have anything to do with us. They didn't want to join tours with us. So basically Billie Jean led the way and she um, went out and tried to find sponsorship for a women's tour. And she found, you know, with Joe Coleman and Gladys Heldman, she found Virginia Slims. And so we were busy building a tour. And in order to do that, 
we had to do more press. We had to give more interviews. We had to do more appearances. And we had to work together to, you know, a lot of these tournaments, you know, they wanted to have Martina and I together. So mm -hmm. Martina and I had to adjust our schedule. Mm. So we did. We worked hard to build a tour. And now the tour is already built. You know, now actually in coming back, maybe the women, because mm. of this, this pandemic, maybe the women are going to have to work a little bit harder at selling their themselves and being marketable. Um, but at that time, you know, majors, listen, we didn't even go to Australia. I went to Australia six times out of 18 years because it was during Christmas and I'm right. not going to. I'm not going to sacrifice my family because of the Australian Open. So we actually, it meant more to us to win nine or ten tournaments a year than to win one Grand Slam at that point. I, I always remind people as the, the world has become so focused, the tennis world, on you know how many majors have you won? Mm -hmm. You know, Serena, Chase, and Margaret Court. And I always remind yeah. people, I said, listen, back in the day when Chris Everett was playing, when McEnroe and, and Borg were playing, they didn't even play the Australian Open. I mean, you only, only, you won it twice in your career. Borg never right. played it. My brother played it wow. late in his career and it was on grass. So, you know, right. doesn't it annoy you just a little bit? I mean, it's got to, because I know it annoys my brother and he'll admit it. Maybe you're too nice. You know, when you look at the Grand Slam toe, this got to, and it's got, by the way, it's got to annoy Martina too. I know you're still, and maybe the yeah. best friend you've ever been with her. So be honest with me. Yeah. It does, doesn't oh, it? Uh, I mean, the, to it, the total major count. Yeah, I, I, annoying sometimes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, if I mean, it's like what you know. Sometimes I'm like annoyed. Sometimes I'm like eh, whatever. Sometimes, you know? sometimes you get annoyed <laughs> with me too, and I, and we see, <laughs> and and you're not afraid to show it on tel television. I, okay, you, thank you. Well, and you know what? Thing. I don't blame you because I can be. We well, can be. I, I can be annoyed. Why I became yeah. annoyed? You want to say why I became annoyed with you? Abs, go ahead. Why not? What? Uh, it, because I. Okay, Patrick was texting during, <laughs> actually, you were doing it during the break, okay. and I wanted to talk tennis, right. and I wanted to, like, let's, this next segment, we're going to address this, and mm -hmm. he was texting, so then I became annoyed with him, but, um, yeah, it's, you know what, I, this greatest of all time is, it's, it's always, I was the greatest of all time in my era, mm -hmm. I remember them writing about that, and then Martina came along, she was the greatest of all time, and Stephanie came along, of all time. Now, story is it's of course. I mean, it's whoever is the most recent um, because everything, technology, mm -hmm. science, medical, everything gets better and better for these athletes. Equipment, and yeah, they're better tennis players, better athletes than 30, 40 years ago. There's no question about it. But if you want to look at eras, look at not only Grand Slams, look at the amount of tournaments they've won. Mm -hmm. Martina Navratilova has won 167 tournaments, okay? Look at percentage of wins. Look at, you know, there's just so many other things to look at besides Grand Slam titles. That's, yeah, for sure. I well, agree with you. Well, I have to say this, that, uh, and you and I actually spoke about this uh, uh, during this break a couple months ago, because it's true. I mean, I, I was watching some of your matches at the French Open when, when you were relatively young, you know, dominating. You basically just didn't miss a ball, and the ball looked like it was moving in slow motion, which essentially it was compared right. to today. By right. the way, same thing. Right. I watched Borg Vilas. I watched that match a couple weeks ago as well. Then I watched yeah. you again in a match, and you and I spoke about it. It was a U.S. Open semifinal in 84, yeah. I believe it was, right, against Martina. Um, yeah. 
And your movement was completely different. I mean, comp- yeah. so much more explosive, so much quicker off the mark. And so that's why when, when people ask me all the time, you know, would the greats of, of yesteryear, com- com- could they play with Nadal, right. for example, or Federer? I say absolutely, because they would have grown up, right. as you said, in, the, in different conditions. I mean, you actually changed what right. you did over the course of your career, which is very difficult right. to do. You know, I think that I, I'm happy that I adapted. I mean, it's all about adapting. And I went through three ge- different generations. You know, I mean, at first it was all about Margaret Court and Billie Jean, and then it was the Martina era. And at the end of my career, Steffi and Monica were, were coming on strong. And all three of those eras were different, and, and they got a little bit better. The, the equipment changed. The balls were getting harder. You know, and I think that um, you just have to adapt. And, I, and I'm glad... You know, I think you're right. I'm glad that I did that. I played better at the end of my career mm-hmm. than I did the beginning when I was ranked number one in the world. So I think you could say that about most people, most champions, most eras, though. Let me ask you this, because you're, without a doubt, the greatest clay court player ever. That's without a doubt. You're right up there at the top as one of the all-time greats on any surface. Who wins on clay? Bjorn Borg, Rafael Nadal. French Open final, best of five. Who wins? Break it down for me. I mean, you, oh, you, you can, it could be we, we could be wood rackets. You could tell me it's wood rackets back in Borg's day. You could tell me it's the new graphite rackets in Nadal's day. Let me break it down. Wow, that's not that's a good question. Um, <laughs> Got you thinking. I mean, I oh, I'm not gonna yeah. say I stumped you, but I you, I made you pause. So that's wow. something right there because that well, rarely happens. First of all. If it was a wood racket, I think Bork would have a better chance, mm-hmm. um, obviously. Um, but um, I think mentally, they were both machines. I mm-hmm. mean, you can't say one was better than the other. Bork would just, wasn't he just icy, cool, sweet, who never missed a ball? Um, they both move well. I just, I think that the wood racket might take away a little bit of the, the uh, spin on Nadal's ball, mm-hmm. don't you think? No, definitely, and, yeah. And Bjorn had a big first serve, yep. and I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I am not going to answer. But okay. I think Borg, a great Borg um, and a great Nadal, put them in the same era mm-hmm. and not you know 40 years apart. I think it would be, you know, he is about the only one that might be able to really give him a run for his money on clay of all the past. Absolutely. And remember Borg retired in his mid twenties with six French open titles. And uh, imagine if he had played until his mid thirties and there's certainly physically, there was no, he just got burned out. Now you didn't get burned out. Borg got burned out mentally. You know, you started relatively at the same age and you were already number one in your teenage years and, and playing pro tournaments at 15 how are you able to not get burned out? Although, I, I mean, I guess you still played into your early 30s, which some, some players are doing I, longer. Know, yeah. I, I, think it's, it, I think Bjorn was the exception of the rule more mm-hmm. than me. I, I, I mean, I kind of – I always wonder why he retired so early because he then came back and he wanted to play. And it's almost like, just take a break. Take three months off if you want. But mm-hmm. – and see how you feel. I'm not. I wasn't quite sure. What well, yeah, that he came back was. like he came back like ten years later. So he no, was, no, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. But I, I just think he thought that it wasn't greener on 
the other side, right? Right. The grass wasn't greener. But anyway, um, I think that I pace myself well. You know, I, I took, when I took my weeks off, I took my weeks off. I got away. I went to the beach. I laid out in the sun. I went to movies. I went shopping. I, I kind of got away from the game when I had my weeks off. And, and, and also, you know, the training in those days was not as, well, I know it wasn't as intense. And it wasn't as um, demanding as it as it uh, as it is now. And and even Bjorn, I think trained. I mean, didn't he play four to five hours a day? He did. Just yeah, grinding. Nine, you know, I, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I practiced two to three hours, maybe at the most, but mainly two hours. Or then I'd go in the gym, and and I really it was it was a, I paced myself and a little bit more. And um, but when I did retire at thirty four, it was definitely mental because I feel like physically I probably could have gone on to 40 because I, I, I still played tennis. I still played exhibitions and I was playing really well. But um, at, at that point at 34 years old, I would wake up in the morning, not want to get out of bed and not want to compete. So I knew it was my time. Well, I know that you still wake up in the morning and you, and you want to compete and things you do. It's a little different obviously now not being uh, on the court, but well, you're on the court and you're actually coaching and you've worked for many years at the Everett Academy. And as, as I mentioned earlier, what you do with your, your charity work, I come to your event every, almost every year down in Florida, yes, which is unbelievable you. and raises huge amounts of money for people in need in, in South Florida. So I commend you for continuing to do that and what you've done over the years there. What, what gets you going in the morning when you wake up? I, mean, I know you keep yourself in great shape, but is it, is it getting out there, working with kids more? What, what are the things that drive you now uh, day in and day out? I, I, my academy, when I wake up, uh, drives um, because the kids, I, I, the kids are, they get excited when I come out there. And I mean, I, listen, if I went out there and they'd go, oh, it's her, <laughs> it would take away some of the fun. Right. But they really want to learn, and they really want advice, and they're like sponges. And, you know, when they're 13, 14, 15 years old, and they really appreciate the help that we, not only me, but the, the, that the coaches give them. And I love their hard work ethic and their discipline at such a young age. So um, it's a lot of fun. It's fun. I can give them a little bit of my wisdom and and past experiences. So that, that wakes me up in the morning. Um, the other thing that keeps me going in the morning when I wake up are my three sons. Like, you know, you have three daughters who you love and you're such a great father, Patrick, by the way. Oh, thank but, you. um, I, I have three boys and, um, you know, I just love them to death. And so they, they continue to inspire me. So it's the Academy. It's my son. Um, my, obviously my charity work at, but I think, and I also want to, I mean, I'm 65. I want to mm. remain vital and healthy and fit. And um, so I think fitness and getting exercise during the day is actually a very important routine that I have also. Well, I missed our hikes this year that we'd like to do every year when we work together at Indian Wells yep. and that great event. And uh, trust yep. me when uh, I say to you, Chrissy, and to all the people listening, it's still tough to keep up with Chris Everett, okay, when she's going oh, up on. going up hiking those those hills. <laughs> and I and I hope that we can all get back to doing what we love to do now, Chrissy, which is call professional tennis on ESPN. Obviously both of both you and I have the luxury of being able to get out with their kids at our academy. So I'm glad you're back on the courts. We're hoping to get back on the courts here in New York shortly. 
And um, I'll look forward to seeing you down the road on the court or in the booth yet again. Well, I love commentating with you, and we have a great team in ESPN. So um, thank you, Patrick. I enjoyed talking to you. Chrissy, thank you so much. The one and only Chris Everett, everyone. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. 